Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Andrew, welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts. I'm, I'm going to just say my piece before I let you introduce our guest. It's been fun because our listeners uh, probably have figured out by now that Andrew prepares our questions, but it's been fun to actually see Andrew a little bit nervous in preparation. So Andrew, talk to us a little bit about our guest today and introduce him if you would. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, probably more excited for this guest than, than ever with, with all of the professionals we've had on here. Uh, th- this is someone that's uh, definitely had a huge impact on my career and, and kind of spurred my, my curiosity, love, and passion for crop physiology. Um, not only did he do that, but he's, he's probably the premier corn and soybean physiologist in, 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 in the world, I'll say, when it comes to uh, just research and, and data. Uh, I mean, I was pretty shocked as I prepped for this. Uh, I looked up Dr. Mark Westgate's name on Google Scholar, yeah, and, and there was a hundred and eleven thousand sources cited <laughs> with with his name on it. So I think the, you know, I feel like anybody that's done any kind of corn or soybean physiology work is is familiar with the name. So I'm happy to have uh, Dr. Mark Westgate on here uh, from Iowa State University. Yeah, Dr. Westgate, welcome. Thank you for taking time to join us. Um, after Andrew's glowing introduction, I guess if you would tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, maybe where you went to school and what you're doing today. Well, sure. It's it's absolute pleasure to be with you guys today. Um, as far as that glowing recommendation, Andrew, you know, it's mostly time. <laughs> yeah, I've had this for about 50 some years. So uh, some would say that wasn't a whole heck of a lot. Anyway, I appreciate your, your kind words and especially that uh, you're taking some of those physiology basic concepts and, and trying to apply them and helping uh, growers apply them as well because uh, got to pay attention got to pay attention got to figure out what the the basic concepts are the plants are paying attention to and then do your best to to uh, help the plants do what they can do so anyway uh, my background is in, in plant physiology I started out um, my career in biology actually I was hoping to be a uh, cell biologist, you know, that kind of basic biochemistry sort of thing, getting into medical school, da da da. Then I realized I liked I liked plants a whole lot more than I liked people. So I decided to go into plant physiology. That's a little bit glib, but um no plants have been a have been a been a fascination for me uh, ever since I started working back in at Monsanto uh, in a plant physiology program. I decided that um, I needed to to uh, learn more and, and uh, hopefully start a career in physiology. So I went back to school to get a PhD at Illinois under John Boyer, which was a great, uh, great event in my life. He was very, very strong in uh, physiology, of course. And a lot of folks know John Boyer very, very well. So it was I a recognize the name from books. And a uh, challenge to be under his tutelage. Um, then took a job at uh, Agriculture Research Service in Minnesota, of all places, beautiful place to live, great place to work, and uh, finally moved down to Iowa State University about uh, 25 years ago, actually, and then worked through the ranks and then became a professor and now an emeritus. I retired a few years ago. Now I'm, um, oh, I guess I'm highlighting, or what would you call that, moonlighting? <laughs> uh, <laughs> working for a company that is called Power Pollen, just south of town here in Ames. A uh, very successful company. It's just very exciting to do with their to be involved in their their activities around repro- improving reproductive development and seed production. So it's it's been a wonderful time, and I'm as happy as I've ever been working with plants. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today, and uh, it'll be a fun conversation. Andrew, talk to us a little bit about. We're going to stray from our normal uh, platform today. Um, talk to us about the format of our uh, two part episode. Yeah, so I know uh, normally we break down our, our topic of discussion uh, into the science, which is usually part one, and then we'll have part two be, you know, real world management implications. And so with this, having, uh, you know, Dr. Westgate's just specialize in, in soybean and corn physiology, we're going to do this a little bit different. We're going to break, you're gonna, we're going to have part one, uh, just be soybean physiology, 
and, and, you know, kind of discuss the impact of heat and drought. Uh, and then part two will be corn physiology and the impact of, of heat and drought and some real world management implications. Very good. Let's get started. Yeah. So, uh, again, um, part one is going to be soybean physiology. Uh, I'm looking forward to having this discussion. You know, we, we've had some pretty, uh, I would say, drastic environmental conditions here the last few years, uh, Dr. Westgate, you know, from severe mm-hmm. heat to, to severe drought. And so, you know, we're going we're gonna to dig in and, and kind of combine these these episodes. You know, we're going we're gonna to talk some science, but we're also going to talk some real world management implications. And so, you know, I, I thought we'd, we'd introduce this topic, you know, the, the soybeans, a C3 plant, you know, I think before we get into any, any kind of recommendations or just science talk, um, let, let's just have, have a quick discussion on, on what is, you know, what, what are some strengths and weaknesses of a C3 plant? Sure. Well, basically that this idea of a C3 plant refers to the photosynthetic biochemistry, uh, the first products of, uh, photosynthesis and uh, the C3 plant, the stable products are a C3 compound. And that's what the plant uses to uh, regenerate more substrate for doing photosynthesis as well as peeling off a little bit of that uh, three carbon compound to grow and to support support uh, the, all the structures that are already there through respiration, et cetera. I think it's important to point out that the uh, so-called C3 mechanism is the same in C in C3 and C4 plants, oh. uh, the basic biochemistry and how, how the, um, so the so-called dark reactions or biochemistry of photosynthesis function, they're the same. It's a matter of, the C4 plants will add on a couple more steps to, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the point here is that um, the C3 physiology doesn't distinguish C3 and C4 plants. Huh. Um, in fact, it's the C4 part of it that really distinguishes them. So uh, basically, the C3 plants, since they're really paying attention to uh, the biochemistry, they have to get CO2 diffusing into the leaf out of the atmosphere. And that requires to, the plant to have um, open stomata, all right? They're very dependent on stomatal aperture, which are the pores and the leaves. Nope. If those close, then they can't get the CO2 in and they are going to basically starve for carbon, mostly because they can't make more of the other substrate in photosynthesis that rubisca, or the REBP. So the, the challenge for C3 plants, of course, is to avoid stomatal closure. And at high temperatures... Uh, that becomes a challenge because they can't get enough water through the plant. And um, that that ends up, one of the first things they do is try to be conservative about water, and they close stomata. And that will decrease photosynthesis, which for that C3 plant is the critical thing. Because we've learned over the years that uh, it's the integral of photosynthesis over the whole season that those plants really key in on. Uh, that's quite different than a C4 plant, actually, or maize, which we typically look at as a C4 plant. So bear in mind, uh, what you have to maintain for high yield in a, in a C3 plant is a long season and a long season of photosynthesis. And that pract- for the practical uh, farmer, that means keeping the stomata open, keeping the channels of water flow from the roots, from the soil to the atmosphere open. That's mm. the way the C4, C3 plants have to function. Yeah. Uh, they have no choice. I mean, they can't concentrate CO2 like a C4 plant does. So they have to have, C, you know, open stomata. No. They we do could, very we, well. We could almost instantly I'm just... Sorry, I'm, I'm just going on. No, 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 no. <laughs> so I'm laughing because Andrew and I had a, had a conversation in a field literally yesterday talking about the advantages of early season planted soybeans and, and lengthening the growing season. And, you know, usually yeah. that's usually that's met ex- with certain farmers with kind of a, a high deal of skepticism, like, right? And, and so it's funny if we could... We can't do that. If we, yeah, <laughs> like, if we could just can like that... For you know, two and a half minutes, we be the, just, hi, be the highlight. Just, yeah, we yeah. could just play the tape recorder and just be like, "Here, don't take my word for it." You know, listen, no, listen to this. It's time. true. Um, the yeah. real advantage for early planting in that C three plant is a longer period between emergence and when they stop flowering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're gonna extend that period. You'll get more pods, and that's the foundation for yield in that crop. So planting late just rushes them to flowering because of the temperature. Our temperatures are higher. Yeah. And, of course, that's the primary thing driving um, the transition from vegetative reproductive growth in soybeans. And, and you know, if you shorten that period, 
<laughs> you put a cap on yield. You can't yeah. fix it after that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm a very strong proponent of early planting soybeans. Now, you both know that the, the problem with that, of course, is all the growing parts are above ground. Right. And that is a risk when it comes to frost and, you know, near frost type, type temperatures, because it, the plant can't deal with that. There, to my knowledge, although they, the seed companies have tried hard, there is no way for that plant to withstand freezing temperatures. It doesn't have the mechanisms. So if you want to get a Nobel Prize in physiology, <laughs> figure out how to give that plant some freezing tolerance. Yeah, that's my goal for work. next week. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> some sort of a winter, some sort of a winter post-emergence winter coat. But so, well, Mar uh, Mark, I'm curious. Before we go on, you know, that, that was a really good explanation. of Some of the strengths and weaknesses of a C3. What you know, and, and soybeans specifically. What what's some of your research? I mean, you got you got decades of research. What what's some, what are just some of the things without going into depth that you've you've researched in soybeans over the years? Well, we've mostly focused on the water relations, the reproductive development. Um, how the flowers and the early pod formation is susceptible to water stress and high temperature. And of course, there's a limit to what that plant will tolerate in terms of a water stress. They're very, very quick to, uh, to, to inhibit pod elongation. All right. One of the key factors in, in making sure that the, um, those early flowers can set a pod and they're successful is maintaining the elongation of that, that, uh, the ovary, excuse me. So if they can do that, then it's it's much greater chance that they'll survive those stressful conditions. Unfortunately, the plant is designed not to do that. Right? Yep. It's very conservative when it comes to adding more pods along arachis or continuing their growth. So this period of, of pod initiation uh, through the end of, you know, until the pods are formed at the top of the plant, uh, that's a very challenging time, very challenging time for the plant. I would dare say it's more challenging in soybean than for corn. The only advantage soybeans have in that regard is that they have a longer period of flowering. Yep. Okay. They can withstand a short period of high temperatures uh, yeah, or drought if they get some recovery conditions because they have more chance to put on, on more productive structures. The corn has a very narrow window for doing that. Oh. So it's not so much that they're better at tolerating the individual flowers tolerating a stress it's just that they have a longer period for adding reproductive uh, locations. And that's really the key for that plant. Um, the more reproductive sites you can add with a longer vegetative period, uh, the more that are successful once they're added, which is what the high yield guys really pay attention to, uh, you're going to get more yield off that crop. No question. Well, it's uh... <laughs> Stay the course. Stay on the questions. Otherwise, we'll we'll go down too many uh, too many rabbit trails. But um, no, re really good start. Uh, walk me through um, early developmental stage. We know that there's almost always a direct correlation between the height of the plant and an increased population. What what causes that response in the soybean? Well, as far as elongation is concerned, uh, I think I'd be more concerned about how about how many nodes are there. Okay. Part of, the, part of the height issue, if you're talking about, is the potential for adding more reproductive nodes. And that correlates with more leaves, obviously, right? So it's a longer, longer vegetative period. The fact that they might be taller, uh, one, beyond adding having more nodes there, uh, uh, so being plant with about 20-some nodes would be really nice, okay? Uh, that would be really good. Um, but there is a... Uh, population response to shading and to crowding. The plants, of course, are always going to be working to avoid the shade because, again, these plants are really dependent on photosynthesis. So you'll see a lot of really long petioles sticking those leaves right to the top of the canopy. And um, that's probably the biggest issue there. I, I would be mostly focused on adding more nodes. So let the plants get tall, okay? Yep. As long as they're putting more nodes on. That's really good. I, I guess to kind of, um, you know, have the discussion from moving from vegetative to reproductive development, you know, we, we know photo, soybeans are a photoperiod sensitive crop. You know, they're, they're a short day 
plant, mm-hmm. uh, technically a long, long night plant, right? So what, what's, right. what's that trigger? How, how's that mechanism work within soybeans? How does the, the process of, of long days trigger yeah, uh, flowering? What, yeah. What, what's kind of that, what's that oh, trigger? Man, we need about three lectures for that one. <laughs> uh, what's, what's a good quick summary? Uh, all right. Uh, let me first indicate that it, the, the photo period that the plants experience if you're planting in late April and early May, or even later, obviously, uh, has very, very little impact on the time to flowering. All right. As a short day plant, they get if the days are longer or the nights are shorter than uh, 12 hours, then uh, short, short day, long nights, right? Long, short yeah, nights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once they get to be uh, shorter than 12 hours, then the plants are going to flower. Okay, so they're the first days they see when they come out of the ground, uh, they have shorter nights than that. So photo period really is not an issue. It's more the thermal accumulation of thermal units that drive the time to flowering from emergence to when they finally get through all the flowers. So um, worry more about temperature than photo period in the way we grow plants around here. So, so is that is that one of the big changes? You know, we typically think of like June twenty first, that summer solstice, is that big trigger for soybeans. Yeah. Is is it? Not at you all. know, when we start looking not, at different. Not even matru- in the equation. <laughs> so when Forget we start about summer solstice. So when we start looking at like maturities, it, it's really the planting date has a big impact on that because of the thermal, G, I mean the, the thermal units, right? The, yes, very good point. There, there is an impact on the de- the. Um, decreasing day length on the duration of seed filling. But it's, in my understanding, in my experience, minor compared to the, the change in the accumulation of thermal units. And as we'll discuss, if we get into it, the accumulation of moisture in those beams. So um, mm-hmm. I, I would take photo period off the list here at latitude 42, because <laughs> the days are already too long. Huh. Nights are already too short to have a, a large impact. Interesting. That's exactly how I would have worded it as well. Uh, no, that, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I think I think you know that, that's a pretty common conversation. I mean, we have we have a specific set of maturities that we plant here in, in the Corn Belt, right? Mm-hmm. And then we off, we often think about the impact, you know, especially as we continue to shift that planting date earlier and earlier. What's a, what's an early Group Two being going to do if we plant that early April? What's an early Group Two going to do if we plant May fifteenth, right. right? And and we and then right. you, you look at later maturity beans. You have that same conversation. What's going to do? If we plant a later maturity bean in early April, and so it, it's good to to have that in the background. Yeah, it it will extend the maturity of those early beans. All right. Um, yeah, and it will have less of an impact on uh, later maturing beans. One thing to remember about what breeders have done with soybeans is they've actually extended. The, uh, the growing season for a similar rated maturity bean. In other words, a, a, a group three is actually have, has a longer season now than it used to have. They still call it a group three. So again, it, it's recognition by, by the breeders that this particular crop to be successful and to, be, you know, to really be high yielding needs a very long growing season. And in part, as I mentioned earlier, it's because because you can add more reproductive nodes. And it's also in part because the plants can uh, stay green longer and fill the pods longer. Yeah. So I'm guessing so with that both. statement, you're probably, a, on you're, both ends. you're probably a fan of later maturity beans if you're going after yield then, right? Yes. Yeah. Makes more sense. I'm more of more a fan of early planting. Yeah. But. Yeah. The, the, yeah it, the thing that's interesting, and I know like, you know, we're in a microclimate here, but obviously you're working just south of Ames. So, you know, so we can talk about what's happening here locally. You know, we're seeing a lot of beans that 10 years ago, we never would have even considered planting. I mean, you know, one six and one eight RM beans that are Mm -hmm. making, you know, yields comparable with stuff that historically you would have had to have a three or a three one. I mean, you know, we, we've seen some upper seventies, even pushing 80, bushel beans in an environment where not that many years ago, it was almost unheard of to be in the 60s. I, this is probably way too broad of a question and a complete deviation no, from no, what we're good. talking about, but how do, you, how, do you, how do you think about that? Because I, I, I sit here as someone who's attempting to advise growers on, on RM groups and planting types. How, how do you yeah. think about that 
kind of RM shift and and that yield potential that seems to be there. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a challenging thing if you're used to RM meaning a certain thing, right? Sure. Like I can yeah. I can be harvesting by September first if I put a one point five out there. Right. Um, the the definition has changed okay. again because the breeders have selected for longer season material, even in the so called earlier varieties. Um, so again, I, I would worry less about what the actual number is, whether it's a 1.8 or a 2.2. I would be more concerned about what my local field conditions are like. Am I going to get early emergence? Um, Am I pushing pushing it too early and the field isn't very good and I'm getting lousy germination? Those are really the key things um, in my estimation. Less giving the plants a chance to have a really good start, uniform canopy development, and make sure that canopy is healthy early on, rather than, geez, should I put in a 2.2 or a, a 2.4? Hmm. Um, because the plants will respond uh, to your early management more than they'll respond to a, you know, a late season, I think. That's, that's my view. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so let's, let's kind of tie this into to, you know, kind of the main reason I wanted to have you on here, just to talk about, as we continue to have these hot, dry conditions, um, you know, there's obviously going to be an impact on vegetative growth. There's going to be an impact on reproductive growth, seed size, seed kernel, seed slash kernel weight. Um, so, so what's, as, as we dig into that, how, how does high temperature impact photosynthesis and, and then reproductive um, mechanisms in soybeans? All right. Well, I think the first thing I would say is that you really can't distinguish a C3 and a C4 plant uh, in terms of its response, photosynthetic response to temperature in the range of say 70 to, to 80 degrees. They're about the same, okay? Uh, as long as the, the stomata are open uh, in, the, uh, in the soybeans. It's at the lower temperatures, the uh, C3s do better, C4s just, uh, their, their biochemistry can't handle the lower temperature, at least the current type of C4s. But it's at the higher temperature where they really begin to just dis- distinguish themselves. Um, above 70, above 80 degrees, 80, 80 to, between 80 and 90, the, um, the C3 plants are now struggling with uh, biochemistry of respiration and the fact that they sometimes fix oxygen out of the atmosphere with the same enzyme that takes CO2 out of the air. And they have to deal with the biochemistry of what's called photorespiration. Both of those things, photorespiration, and just normal, um, let's call it biomass respiration, uh, are temperature dependent. They increase just about linearly uh, with temperature. So for the same level of photosynthesis, if respiration's going up and photorespiration are going up, the net to the plant goes down. Now the C4 plant does much better because it can overcome quite a bit of that photorespiratory um, diversion of carbon, but it still has some photorespiration going on. Yeah. But it keeps it to a minimum because the plant can fix CO2 for be a C4 carbon, and that, that tends to, to uh, put more CO2 around the enzyme rubisco. Yeah. And that minimizes the photorespiration part. But they still have to deal with the respiration part. Okay? Yep. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they have more biomass, they're respiring. And there's some variation on that theme. But by and large, the C3 plants struggle at higher temperatures because their net photosynthesis, net fo- net fo- excuse me, net photosynthetic gain is less per unit of carbon fixed. And that's a problem. Yeah. Because if they're they're adding vegetative material, that's going to slow that down. Oh, yeah. If they're making decisions about how many pods to 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 stick on the on the plants at each node, that's going to go down because those are very sensitive to assimilate uh, supply. And as well as seed filling, all those things will be challenged at higher temperatures. Yeah, and, and just that, because they're less efficient. Yeah, and, and that kind of ties in with with the next question. You know, having this discussion about, you know, you mentioned earlier, their stomates have to be open to, cap, open to capture carbon. Um, you know, you mentioned higher temperatures in soybeans, and then we start factoring in a drought, and, and obviously plants, mm-hmm. you get into a droughty, uh, high temperature slash yeah. droughty situation. Plants, whether you're C three, C four 
you want to conserve water at some point, right? So, so talk a that little bit about true. talk a little bit about this. This I, f- I feel like it's a constant struggle in the summertime. This constant struggle that a soybean plant would potentially deal with wanting to uptake CO two while not wanting to lose water because it's dry. Yeah, well, the the conservation of water will always win out that little battle. All right. Okay. Um, and the the plants do have a mechanism which is root derived that sends signals when the soil begins to dry around the roots. The roots will send a signal, chemical signal, and they may even be sending uh, molecular signals now too, messenger RNA, et cetera, Uh, um, to the shoot that says it's time to conserve water. And the first thing that's gonna happen, of course, is this tomato will close. That's one of the, the responses to those signals. And the plant will suffer through having higher tissue leaf and and tissue temperatures because of that because it can't cool itself and that works also against the plant but remember we we want to get the most out of these plants because they're they're from an agronomic side of things all right that's our desire but the plants have have been um, uh, what i call evolved if i can use that term evolved through situations where just a few seed are all they really need to keep the genes going for the next generation. So the gap between um, the, the genetic tendency to be conservative in terms of seed formation versus our need, agronomic need for putting on as many seeds as possible, um, the plants are, are going to lean toward the, the conservative side yeah. because they have mechanisms in place, layers of mechanisms in place both in the flowers and in, in the, um, the vegetative materials. So what the say, plant hey, wants versus what the agronomist and grower wants is quite a bit different. <laughs> they are not the same. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I, I use the terms loosely, but they remember where they came from. Yeah. All right. Uh, they might not be selected anymore for that, that purpose, but all those mechanisms to minimize seed formation and um, just make sure that plants have a few good seeds that they can mature um, they they are they remember those mechanisms, and it's very difficult to peel them away, all of them away. And I will tell you that maize is probably worse than than soybeans in that regard. Hmm. When a soybean is trans- transitioning to dry matter accumulation, um, what is the energy cost to produce the higher protein content um, relative hmm. to starch and corn? Yes, of course, the soybean produces a seed that's full of protein and oil, right? We like to get a bean that's in excess of 36, 38% protein and more than 20% oil. That's a lot of oil and protein in the seed. Uh, those products, the oil in particular, is about three times more ex- expensive energetically than, than starch. Protein's about two and a half times. So it's not surprising that for a given length of the season, uh, given the same photosynthetic input that the, the corn plant can yield in terms of mass per unit area about three times as much as a soybean plant can. It's, it's fundamental energetics when it comes down to what they're putting into their seeds. Yeah. The, the harvest indices are pretty similar these days, um, certainly above 0.5, maybe even approaching 0.6. Uh, the total mass. So that's very, very productive relative to where they started. But the the composition really hasn't changed a great deal. So they still have that energy requirement to put more more uh, fixed carbon into making oil and more car- fixed carbon in making protein. And but most of and, and in soybean, the vast majority of that carbon comes from sucrose. Just because they put a lot of pro- nitrogen in the seed, carbon is coming from sucrose. So they got to parse it between protein, oil, and starch huh. and other carbohydrates. So the plant still has to ship sucrose to those beans. And if it's limited by assimilate uh, production, the beans will get you know some priority, no question. But there's other parts of the plant that are still demanding assimilate as well, just to maintain respiratory requirements yeah. if they're not even growing. So... so in the early High temperature is going to cause a problem there, right? You yeah. can imagine that. Water stress is going to cause a problem from an assimilate supply perspective. Okay, no question. The beans will stop growing if the plant runs out of assimilate supply. 
they'll grow beautifully until the plant does that. But yes, that's one way the beans will stop. So how, so how then in that seed development process is seed size determined? All right. Seed size, if we can just back off the stress question for a minute, stress issue. Seed size is determined by expansion. All right. Expansion of the, in the case of, of beans, uh, the cotyledons primarily, right? That's the, that's the most of the mass in the bean. Okay. So as long as those cotyledons can continue to expand, and that's a water relations question, water, water relations issue, they will keep growing. The plant will just keep giving them a similar. So there's been some theories out there that the pod wall stops them from expanding more. And, and you've probably been out and seen pods that are just chock full of beans, right? They can't get any bigger. Um, but there's, you know, that's probably accounts for a fair amount of the, the, the termination of development. But there's also varieties of beans that have very large pods and don't produce really big beans. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the other things are, are, are involved as well. And part of that is hormonal. And part of that is assimilate supply. Under stressful conditions, the hormones and the, and the, the failure to continue to expand become bigger issues. High temperatures are probably more of a respiratory dominance. So there's too much respiration going on to have a net gain in growth. So both are going to be an issue. And high temperatures as well as water stress are going to slow, basically shorten the duration of seed filling is what it comes down to. Yeah. So so we, we, we've had this conversation, you know, the, the beginning process of seed development in, in a soybean seed. And, and then maybe we've kind of tied in you know, some of the drought and, and potentially high temperature impacts. Um, mm-hmm. What what dictates, you know, we have this conversation commonly with the, the source in the sink, right? So the leaves produce the, uh, absorb the energy from the sun, produce um, sugars, um, send that to the sinks, you know, the roots, stems, mm-hmm. seed. What, what dictates the sink strength of a soybean seed? Uh, this is so good. Wasn't that a question we did in an exam once? It was. You're supposed to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody if wants we, to hear me, if though. We, if we had enough um, time, we'd have Andrew answer first, and then we'd, you know, we'd have Mark. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, and then we'd yeah. get a grade because that's, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. No, it, it's a very important question uh, because that in, that initiation and support of that sink strength, so to speak, is a is a very important determinant of whether or not that that particular um, bean will continue to expand, continue to grow. All right. So initially, the the osmotic conditions within the young zygote are very important. In other words, is there enough assimilate there to help draw water into that expanding structure? And early stages of development are also of seed development are also accompanied by very rapid cell division. Okay. So the combination of cell division and cell expansion are what really drive or, or determine sink strength, okay? Those, those rapidly expanding, rapidly dividing structures are demanding. They have a great demand for assimilate, and the plant will send assimilate to them, okay? Um, it, it's a very good rule of thumb, if you wish, uh, to recognize that the plant, the leaves, don't determine where the assimilate goes. They just dump it into the phloem and then the gradients within the plants determine how that assimilate is partitioned. Mm. Those that are growing most rapidly, expanding and dividing uh, vigorously, are going to get the lion's share of assimilate. Those that have basically come to the end of their expansive uh, growth process, like the leaves do and the stems do during seed filling, well, they're not demanding as much. They're maintaining their their growth, their their um, structure and integrity through respiratory activities, and that requires some assimilate. But those tissues that are growing, like that young seed or that whole suite of seeds on the plant, they're the ones that are drawing the assimilate. So sink strength really comes down to how quickly they're growing, how quickly they are dividing and expanding. And as long as that division and expansion can continue, they will keep growing and demanding that assimilate. So that that division... And expansion is sending some sort of a hormone trigger that's asking, requesting from the plant that 
that assimilate. Is that correct? Or how, what, what is the signal that says? Actually, it's the, the hormone signal. It, it precedes that. Okay. Okay. The, um, in fact, it's interesting that the roots and the hormones they produce under good conditions, their rapid growing conditions, are critical signals for accelerating, expanding the, um, the growth of the, the new zygotes, of those new seeds. Hmm. So the more cytokinin that's coming up from the roots, the more seed set you will see. And people have shown this in many different ways. Yep. So how do you want to maintain good seed formation? Take care of the roots. Healthy roots. Right? Well, I, You're we, ignoring the roots. Oh we, boy, now <laughs> I got to hear this. I heard this three I, times I gotta, before I gotta we say started. This. I mean, I, I, do, I do enough talks. You've had this conversation, have you? Yeah. Well, one, this one is of my high yield guys do. Hey, yeah. they is. are paying serious attention to the health of the roots. Yeah. They yeah. really are. I, I give credit every time I do a talk. I say my favorite professor of all time said a statement to me one <laughs> time in class that has stuck with me and I still use. Healthy leaves require healthy roots, and healthy roots require healthy leaves. And, and then there's that connection between, yeah. 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 So They're, They are connected. So when you say that there's a, a signal, uh, think of it more as a physical, physio- and a physical chemical signal, yep. where a similar is being drawn out of the, the, the supply tissue that, that just gets toward the, the seeds, subtends the seeds. And then the activity of the seeds drawing that assimilate basically draws more out of the flow. It just keeps drawing it. Yeah. So and there's starch you know, granules it's, too, it's right? The man part that, that supports the continued growth. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then there's starch granules too within that, which would impact that, correct? There are starch, um, you mean in, in the seeds? Yeah. Or leaves? Yeah, there's starch in early the, on in the, the seeds. seeds. You bet. Yep. yep. And it's thought that a lot of that starch is remobilized. Um, Either, either from the endosperm or from uh, the, the cotyledons themselves, because they are they are in fact photosynthetic, um, that that is used to to supply the the oil production later on in development. Okay, so two part question. First, what naturally dictates the duration of grain fill in soybeans, and then what what if anything can a grower do to manipulate or extend that? Um, to create a larger, heavier seed. All right. Um, what naturally determines it is the expansion of the cotyledons. Whatever it takes to continue those cotyledons to to continue their expansion is what determines their uh, how long that seed will continue to develop. It's really telling that you can take a soybean seed off of a plant, right out of the pod. And maybe under normal conditions, that seed might grow to, oh, maybe 150 to 200 milligrams, not unusual numbers. Uh, You put that little seed in culture and you give it lots of nutrients and water and just it can expand and expand. You can make a seed that's well over 1,000 milligrams. Really? Easy. It's not hard to do. So as long as that, those cotyledons... Again, the bulk of that seed are allowed to continue to expand. They will. So whether it's a physical restriction from the pod wall or there is a change in the water status of the plants that limits the amount of assimilate delivered to those seeds or a, uh, another type of restriction that says respiration's just dominating, that there's, there's too much respiration, et cetera, um, things along those lines. There's also some thought that that the oxygen diffusion through that big fat cotyledon can slow down uh, its its respiratory activity, but I'm not a I'm not really a strong proponent of that one because it doesn't take a whole lot of oxygen to maintain respiration. You can get it down to what two percent and it's still doing very very well. Anyway, so yeah. What I'm can just, the growers do? I'm picturing a marble size. <laughs> now that you marble said that, I'm picturing a marble sized soybean. <laughs> oh, you can't. You can. All right. It, you know, it's funny. People have done these, these um, pod manipulation experiments. Okay. They've taken away pods and let like half the pods fill out and they get to be twice as big. All right. Um, they found ways to to uh, make them smaller. You can really manipulate the size of the pods physically. 
but you know that's not something that a that a grower can do. I think the the um, the real solution here, or the real approach I would take, given the option, is to make sure that there are as many pods as possible that have the potential for setting seed, for putting seeds in them. All right, and that that event occurs right around flowering. Right around flowering. If at all possible, the plant will fill those beans. It will. Unless there's something really dramatic. you got to hit them pretty hard with the stress latent development. To have them stop fill those beans. The, the challenge, I guess, in that regard is, is the grower being paid for fewer larger beans or a lot of smaller beans? Okay, because they put a lot more beans on it, the chances are they'll be smaller. And that, to me, is, is a is a um, what a business question, not so much a, a physiology question. Uh-huh. And I don't know if there's a penalty for bringing in small beans or bringing in very large beans that might be uh, too full of oil. I mean, you know, there's there's things like that that are beyond the scope of physiology that a farmer can deal with. But my, my, my recommendation is always make sure that the plant has put as many pods on as it possibly can. And those are early season decisions. Yeah. So Sean, Sean had a good question earlier, you know, talking about, you know, we have the rate and duration of grain fill, which can impact and dictate uh, seed and kernel weight, right? And, and then eventually yield. You know, as we continue to talk drought and heat, Say say we're in the the prime grain fill period or dry matter accumulation period for soybeans. How how's really high temperatures and or drought or the combination like we often see? How, how's that impact you know the rate and duration of grain fill and that effect of grain fill in period? Yeah, well, in general, both will shorten the duration of filling, uh, but maybe not for the same reasons. Uh, higher temperatures, increase in temperature will increase the rate of biochemistry you're, you're you know that and metabolism so the um the accumulation of dry matter was going to increase the rate of filling will increase but it can't sustain that all right that's the problem because the plant uh, eventually will not be able to supply the assimilate at the same rate so um the duration of filling will be uh, shortened because basically the plants are the seeds are filling faster the other thing with drought is uh, that's more likely a termination of, of the, or shortening the duration of filling just because the plant runs out of assimilate. All right. Now, I've done experiments in the past where you can, you can impose a pretty serious water stress on the soybeans during seed filling. And you see those seeds just continue to fill and fill and fill, but they stop abruptly. And what that tells me is that the plant will, uh, as best it can, from whatever reserves it might have in the leaves and the stem and the roots, it'll, it'll cannibalize itself to fill the, the seeds as long as it possibly can. All right? But it will run out of assimilate. Yep. And that will bring seed filling to an abrupt end. Now, under those conditions, the seed may still fill what looked to be normal. All right? They just were smaller. Where you get... Um, a decrease in, or a, what I would call a premature shortening of the of the filling period. You see these wrinkled seeds. That's a very different phenomenon, because the seeds have not have in that case haven't matured naturally, where they desiccate later in filling, and then there's this this race, if you will, between desiccation and filling, and whichever comes first is is where the seeds will stop growing. But under even under stressful conditions, the seeds. If they appear to look like normal seeds, normal seeds, but they're smaller, um, they may have been rushed through seed filling, okay? And they went through the normal process of expansion and desiccation and, and dried out normally. I'm, and those seeds are still valuable because they will germinate and do very well unless they have to grow under stressful conditions, all right? There's many, many studies that have shown that even those small seeds do very, very well under good growing conditions. All right, they'll do fine because the plant becomes autotrophic pretty soon after the leaves come out of the ground, all right, or the, the cotyledons come out of the ground. So it doesn't rely on the, the seed itself very long. Yeah. Those cotyledons become photosynthetic and the leaves 
turn, uh, you know, they bring out those new leaves that are already in the seed and it becomes autotrophic fast, which is great. So a small seed can do very well. Where you are into trouble with seeds that are that are developing under stressful conditions is they tend to be more vulnerable to things like cold soils oh, or yeah. a high mm-hmm. temperature. So overall vigor, right? Yeah, Their vigor is down mm-hmm. and you don't see it under good conditions. You only see it under poor conditions. So that is a um, something growers must be aware of. Yeah. And I they imagine seed, seed production, that would they be impactful too. can't take a too. chance on small seeds and try to cram them in early in poor soils in the spring because they got to get the acreage covered. That will not work well. Yeah. And you've probably seen examples of that. So, so I, I have one final question. I think Sean's got a good uh, kind of a grower management question yeah. to, to wrap up. Um, so, so we have this term black layer and corn, you know, kind of a visual identifier that, that occurs after physiological maturity or right? after, after maximum kernel weight. What, what's that look like in soybeans? Uh, separation of the hilum from whatever vascular tissue it was connected to. Similar kind of thing. It's just more, it's more obvious, right? That there's a physical separation. So similar process, it, just just different, less visual in, in soybeans. And well, it's a, it's an abscission. It's an abscission process. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can follow it, but if you open pods that are, you know, seeds are still drying down, uh, I don't know that you'll see an obvious deterioration of that of that um, vascular connection. Got you. So, so bear that in mind because the water can go back into the plant. All right. Right. It's not yeah. not a one way street necessarily. Yeah. That's true in both corn and soybeans. As Which, long as the vasculature is is intact, the water that leaves those beans can go back into the plant. Oh. So so you, you, you kind of trigger you kind of trigger another question, uh, and, and maybe you can answer this or give us your thoughts. You know, we we've had some pretty high soybean yields the last few years under dry conditions. And, you know, mm-hmm. historically, how, how often do we make those comments that late August or August rains make soybean right. yields, right? Yeah. And, and I feel like we just haven't had those recently. And yet I, f- I feel like we're still filling those soybean seeds and, and just yields are, are still, you know, pretty good, better, better than yeah. expected. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, remember that Iowa is blessed with a very shallow uh, water table. And even though the soil looks dry, dry, dry on top, those plants can still draw, if they get down to about five feet roughly, they can draw on that subsurface moisture. So very often the plants are better off than they look, okay, or better off than you expect due to lack of rain because they've, they're tapping the subsoil. And that is really an important thing. If there were one question I would ask seed producers or seed companies is how deep do the roots grow in this variety? Yeah. Can they reach the subsoil? Mm-hmm. And how often? Now, we're we're facing some drier conditions now, and that that uh, that water table is receding. All right. So we have to be very cognizant of where that that water table is on, on the far on each farm. All right. And it would be great for growers to put a couple of tubes in the ground. And measure it themselves. All right, put a tube down about six, seven feet, and see where the water is. You can do it. You know, I've been doing this for what seems like a long time, and that just seems like a light bulb <laughs> just went off. Like that's yeah. not a radical concept, right? But it's, but it, it not at all. But it no. would be, it would be a great way to measure. You know, one, I mean, to consider rooting depth, and you know companies have done it forever at all the farm shows, right? They dig the corn roots. You see the health of the corn roots, but you could very easily do that um, in in soybeans. As we wrap up the soybean portion, um, normally at the end of our show, we we have an opportunity for uh, what we refer to as cashing in our pennies, but I kind of want to do that a little bit different today. Um, And I guess I would ask you, because we're not doing a management portion, You've you've obviously seen a lot of the high yield soybean management and, and the concepts around that. Mm-hmm. Give give us give our growers just kind of to wrap the soybean part the the maybe three or four key takeaways you would have for thinking about um, high yield soybean management management. What what are your key takeaways for growers to consider? Yeah, well, we've already touched on a few of them. Um, early in the season, obviously, uniform emergence. Give every, every plant a chance. Now, the soybean plants, if they're 
crowded and if, if some plants are falling behind, they will be removed from the population. Yep. Okay. But you need to start out with a uniform immersion. A long vegetative period. And by long, I mean delaying flowering as late as long as you can. And that typically means a longer season variety, right? Are we still are we still using variety these days? We are. Yeah. I'm not sure that's in vogue anymore, but anyway. <laughs> um, because again, it's it's all about how many reproductive nodes does that plant have to work with. Now, what helps that immensely is signals coming from the roots saying, hey, we're in good shape. Make as many nodes and set as many seeds as you, you can. And these are signals coming from rapidly growing roots, root tips. And we talked about this, this issue of cytokinins. Uh, they determine, there's no question, they determine how many seeds are set on that plant. You know, and of course, that's supported by the capacity to supply assimilate. But you have to have a rapid elongation of those, those pods. And that's what I'd be counting. I'd be, I'd be looking at how many pods are elongating on this plant all the way up and down. But more, even more importantly than that, it's am I getting a lot of nodes off this, this particular variety? Yep. So, awesome. Um, Make sure that uh, those roots are happy. And, you know, if you can irrigate, that's one way. If you can make sure there's no uh, hard pan or whatever, you know, get rid of that. Aeration of the soil is huge. All those things that everybody knows about. But recognize that it's really the root health you're paying attention to. And that will help a lot. It'll help a lot. I'd start with those things. I wish we had... You know, hours and hours and hours because I I I think there's a million ways we can go with this. But uh, excellent soybean physiology. Thank you for the discussion. Um, thanks for some advice for our growers. Um, Andrew, do you have anything to add as we conclude uh, part one of soybeans? I don't. Looking forward to the corn conversation when we come back. Doctor Westgate, thank you. We'll be back with uh, corn physiology. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at apennyforyourthoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.